We are five weeks into a teaching series called The Promised Land, walking through the Old Testament book of Joshua. Now, I recognize some of you are here with us. You're visiting family, you're visiting friends. This is your first week. You're, why are they in the middle of uh, the Old Testament book of Joshua? Why are we popping in? Will I miss anything? The answer is, I'm well aware that you're here, and I'll try to make it so that you're not hopping into the middle of something. We'll provide enough context so you'll appreciate it. And plus, the sixth chapter of Joshua is a familiar enough story. I think you'll be fine. We got here. Warren Worsby, in his commentary on Joshua, said this. He writes, too many Christians are in between in their spiritual lives, between Egypt and Canaan. They've they've been delivered from the bondage of sin, but they've not, by faith, entered into the inheritance of rest and victory. How to enter and claim this inheritance is the theme of Joshua. So this whole book of Joshua is about walking into faith, not just belief, into faith. And what does it look like to walk in and to trust Jesus every day through the hills, through the valleys, through the difficulties, through the challenges, and through all the times where you'll be called to trust him implicitly when life gets hard? Because it does. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Joshua, it continues the story of the Israelites who'd been called out of slavery in Egypt as Moses declared to Pharaoh, let my people go. And now they're being called into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And in the first chapter of Joshua, twice, God calls Joshua to be strong and courageous, telling Joshua not just to trust in himself, Not just to lean into his abilities, not to find his true identity and live it out. No, God says, trust me and be strong and courageous in how I've established you. Trust me. Trust my word. Trust what I've declared to be true. Trust me and live out your life according to what I've called you to do. Be strong and courageous. That's what God calls Joshua to in the first chapter. And in the second chapter, he sends the spies back into the land to reassess. And what you find in the second chapter is the story of Rahab, who was not an Israelite, who had no business coming to know the Lord her God, except for the fact that God had a plan. Now, this was not a religious person, and in fact, she wasn't a particularly good person. The Bible describes her as a lying prostitute. The Bible's words, not mine. And yet the Lord chose to redeem her, not based on her merit, but because she believed in him. It's an early indication. It starts to forerun the gospel, even in the Old Testament, that God can and will save anybody, regardless of what has happened in their life, regardless of their past, and regardless of what they're neck deep in, God has a plan. And he saved Rahab out of it. And ultimately, she becomes the grandmother to the 26th power of Jesus. So that, but great, 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 great. We could go through it. We've done it twice. That's Rahab. In Joshua 3 and 4, the Israelites cross the Jordan River on dry ground, mind you, as the Lord stops up the river and gives his people dry dirt to walk on so that they would see that with God, anything is possible, even crossing a huge, uncrossable river. Then in Joshua 5, just as the army prepares to take Jericho, 
just as they're building their battle plan, the Lord calls on Joshua to see to it that they're all ready by calling him to circumcise his whole army. Is that wise? was according to the Lord. He wanted them to know, and I mean, he really, really, really wanted them to know that having crossed over into the promised land, that they would never have to depend on their own strength. That he would always be sufficient. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be their sufficiency. He would be their strength. So that's where we've been in Joshua. So as we turn into the sixth chapter this morning, we're going to see the Lord calling them to now press into Jericho. You probably know the story. Joshua 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now we saw in chapters 2 and in chapter 5 that Joshua writes that the Canaanites had heard of the God of Israel. They knew of his works, and because of those works, testifies this in Deuteronomy and Joshua, because of what God had done, they were terrified. They were scared to death. And why do you think that is? Why do you think God might be seen as scary if you don't know him? Why might somebody be terrified of him? And I think it's a two-part answer. First, I think we're prone to fear what we don't know and what we don't understand. You may or may not know this. In Genesis 12, God starts speaking to Abraham, and it terrified him. In Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. And now while the text doesn't explicitly say that's a scary moment, I think we could kind of implicitly get when you're on a hike and a bush starts talking to you, your first response would be fear. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, bushes don't normally talk to me, let let alone bushes on fire that aren't burning up. Even in John 1, when Jesus calls Peter by name before they'd even met, can't you imagine that for just a moment, Peter goes, what? Who is this guy? Who is this guy that seems to know me? I remember the first Sunday I walked into a church when I moved to Dallas. I didn't know anybody in the city. I didn't know anybody at the church. I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't know what we'd do. And I sure didn't know if I wanted to talk to anybody or not. I wasn't sure if I wanted to sneak in late and, and, and sneak in late and leave late. That seemed like a good plan to me. It seemed safe. Why? Because I felt like an outsider. It was a new environment and new people. And friends, I'm totally aware that church can feel that way. So let me exhort you this way. If you're not well connected here at Calvary, even if this is your first Sunday, can I encourage you to not stay on the outside, but to take a chance to grow with and into the people of God, to build some relationships, to join a community group, attend a connection class, because there's something remarkably beautiful about being part of God's family, the church. And do you know why that is? Because God knew we could not live this life on our own. That's why the church is his plan. We're not just a group of people who gather together to celebrate how perfect we are. Rather, it's the opposite. 
We're a group of people who gather, acknowledging first that we're sinners and we cannot do it on our own. We gather together to exhort and encourage one another that we will overcome our sin. Jesus will rule and reign, and he has a plan to carry us through all. God wants to put us together. Friends, do not walk through this life alone. It's too hard, it's too difficult, and it will tear you in shreds. But I get it. There's something intimidating about walking in for the first time. I've been there so many times in my life. And I think this initial unknown was part of the Canaanites' fear. But that's only one part of it. There's a second part of it. We'll lean into the second part more next week a little bit. They feared God because they'd already rejected him. How do I know that? Deuteronomy 9 will testify to that. It'll be in your Bibles in front of you, or you can see the screen behind me. Let me read Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6 to you. Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not say in your heart, talking to the Israelites, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. God is instructing the Israelites. When this happens, when the people in Jericho, when the Canaanites are pushed out of their land, don't say this in your heart. Don't confess this. Don't believe that this is true. Because remember, we cause them into the promised land. There are already people living in the promised land who have to be removed from the promised land so that the Israelites can take it. God says, do not believe this in your heart. This is what he says, verse 4. Do not believe it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness, verse 5, or the right uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What God says to Israel, long before they get to the Jordan River, long before they cross over is, you're not my people because you're good enough. You're not my people because you have a righteousness that is your own. You're not my people because you have such immense potential. Now, God says, it's not your righteousness that caused me or prompted me to call you and to bring you this far. God says, I'm bringing you here because I promised I would. Because it's in my character to be true to my character. And I said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would preserve these people. God's character is consistent. He's sovereign. You see this in the Old Testament. That's part of the reason we're here. No, God was bringing the Israelites in, not because they were righteous, but because the nations were unrighteous. And that's what prompted the Lord to discipline them, to drive them out. You see it even in the Old Testament, that there is a, God has a willingness to discipline people, to bring them to an understanding of his righteousness, to bring them to an understanding of his rightness. The next verse helps make that clear, Deuteronomy 9.6. By the way, this is a great one to underline for you. I'm not pointing at you. It's a great one to underline. It's underlined in my Bible. I'm not picking on you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. 
This is God's concluding argument in Deuteronomy 9. God's making it abundantly clear to the Israelites that he wasn't blessing them, he wasn't providing them, he wasn't leading them because they were good enough. No, he was blessing them and providing for them and leading them because he said he would. God's keeping his sovereign word. But the other thing for us to see, even in this Deuteronomy, is to pick up on the reality that salvation is always paired with judgment. For you to be saved, you're being saved from something. But you're also being saved to something. Both are important. You believe in Jesus Christ for the redemption of your sins and you are saved. But that's not the only story because the corollary is also true. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ for the redemption of your sins, you will not be saved. This book testifies to both. So God calling the Israelites into the promised land was his blessing. He was accomplishing something. He was being consistent with himself, being consistent with his word. He was keeping his promises. And that was this. He wanted to give them something they radically didn't deserve. Now hear that. God wanted to give them something they radically did not deserve. Why? Because he had a deep and a rich and abiding love for them. As we move on to the second verse in Joshua 6, I want us to listen closely to this next verse because it's crucial. It's crucial to understanding the book of Joshua and salvation as a whole. Look at this verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Why is that crucial? Look what God says. I have given Jericho into your hand. Now in English, this reads as a past tense verb. But in Hebrew, this is the verb is in what is called the prophetic perfect tense. We don't have it in English. I have given. It describes a future action as if it were already accomplished. It describes... A future action, something that's going to happen in the future as if it's already happened. Why? Because it's already happened. God has already secured it. God's going to be consistent. He's going to be faithful. He's going to do what he says he's going to do with his people. The Lord is saying to Joshua, I'm calling you to do this thing that I've already accomplished for you. I just need you to walk into the thing I've already done for you on your behalf. And then he gives them the orders. He says what he wants them to walk into, the thing that he's already done. Verses 3 through 5. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, this is a familiar story, and if you grew up in the church, there's a high likelihood at some point you marched around a box at some point. 
You walked this out. You saw this story. But understand this. The Lord is giving Joshua the exact orders to overcome the city that he had already overcome for them. He's asking them to obey. He's asking them to believe him. He's asking him to walk out in trust that what God has said he would do, he's already done. Why is that so important? And perhaps more importantly to you, why on earth am I preaching Joshua 6 on Easter morning? Other than the natural fact that it comes after Joshua 5. It's because Joshua 6 and Easter have the same essential message. That God has already accomplished something on your behalf. And he's calling you to trust in him. God, who sees you and knows you for who you are. God, who knows everything about you, has a plan for you to give you something that you radically do not deserve. But because of his intense love for you, he accomplished something for you that you're going to have to trust him on. You're going to have to believe. By the way, this belief isn't just a one-time event. For belief in Joshua 6, and even in the New Testament to some extent, it's not just a marked first-time event. It just doesn't say, hey, say you believe Jesus once and then go on with your life. Woo! You don't just make a statement and carry on with life as if nothing changed. No, belief is this continuous life that says, I'm marking it, this is absolutely true. Everything about this, I'm going to lay my life on. That's why they walked around the city seven times. Because they believed it. And their marching testified to their belief of it. That God had something for them that they didn't deserve, that God wanted to give to them. On Easter, we celebrate that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the full penalty that your sin and mine demanded, that it deserved. Friends, your sin deserves a penalty. It's like being a parent. If your kids continually disobey, even if they disobey once, they don't learn, do they? you got to teach them. you got to teach them over and over and over and over again. Sometimes there's spankings or timeouts. I don't know what you do in your house. But there's a punishment. It's always that way. You break the law, there's a punishment. God says there's a punishment for your sin. And Jesus took that punishment. And he paid the price. And he already accomplished something on your behalf for you. Just like he did for the Israelites. He already accomplished salvation for us, but just like the Israelites, we must trust him. We must believe. Paul preaching in Acts 16 says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus did the work. He died on the cross, but you must believe. More specifically in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So just like the Israelites, Joshua 6, you are called to trust God's promises, to trust in an event that has already happened, to know that in a perfect prophetic sense, God has already accomplished something for you that you have to believe in, you have to trust. You have to take God at his word just like the Israelites do. Verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord. And he said to the Lord, Go forward, or said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them, the armed men were walking before the priests who were continually blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continuously. And for six days they did this. Has it ever occurred to you how absolutely absurd that plan is? This is a fortified city. Now, I'll grant you that inside is full of people who are terrified, but my guess is they had weapons. My guess is somewhere in the six or seven days, there was some anxiety amongst the Israelites going, what if they throw rocks at us? What if they shoot arrows at us? What if they fight? And our plan is just to walk around. This is ridiculous. And yet that was God's plan. That's what God called them to do. That's what they walked out. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted out a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before them, and they captured the city. Now this is an illustration. Remember, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says that the Old Testament is an illustration to point out faithfulness to us. We can learn from the examples And what's the example here? Is God faithful? Does God keep his word? Yes. Even when the plan seemed absolutely absurd, did God keep his word? What kind of absurd plan is sending an innocent man to the cross? What kind of a ridiculous plan is taking the sinless one, having him flogged, beaten, and cursed, and sending him to the cross. What kind of ridiculous plan is that? 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is it a ridiculous plan? Absolutely. The world gets that. The world sees that. 
It was a ridiculous and foolish plan, and yet it was the plan of God. To the Canaanites, walking around the walls was foolishness. To the unbeliever, the cross is foolishness. But to the believer in Jesus Christ, to those who are saved, it is the power of salvation. Paul continues to write this in 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the word the world did not know God through wisdom. You can't smart your way into the kingdom of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God that we'd have to believe something foolish, absurd. We'd have to believe it. We'd have to trust it. Couldn't argue our way into it. We wouldn't come up with a natural proof. Hey, this makes total sense. We'd have to just believe in the absurdity of it. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, verse 22. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, it might well seem that God's plan for the Israelites to take Jericho was foolish. And it was. And it might seem foolish that God's plan was for his son to die. And it was. But it was also the wisdom of God and the plan of God for salvation. And just like the Israelites, we are called to believe it, to walk in faith, to take God at his word and believe it's true, to live like it's true. For just like the Israelites, it will happen according to what God has proclaimed. That Christ would be crucified On the third day, he would rise again. It's not an empty promise. It's not a baseless claim. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul walks through the list of eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. It's an incredible chapter. I suggest you read that sometime today. To hear the people who saw Christ risen, to know that any of those people could have come back and countered Paul's writing. Any of those people could have said, it didn't happen, it's not true. You have a long list of people who watched Jesus resurrected. Paul would later write, if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, even his death is foolish. 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen through 21 For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. Friends, this morning we gather together to celebrate that what God has said would happen has happened. That Jesus went to the cross 
and he accomplished salvation for you and for me. That on the third day, Jesus rose again. This morning I was reading in Matthew 28, Angel says to Mary Magdalene, testifying to her, just as he said it would happen. Just as what God declared would happen, it happened. It was truth. Jesus has accomplished salvation for you and for me. His work is complete. His death paid the price for your sin and for mine. And his resurrection gives us new life. Friends, Hebrews 11 testifies that the Israelites walked around the city of Jericho for seven days because they believed. What will belief call you to do? What will belief call you to do? Because at some point you have to wrestle with whether or not you're going to believe in the crucifixion of Jesus. Whether or not you're going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you do, it changes everything. For the way better. For the way better. Now, I'm not saying the way easier. I'm not saying the way simpler. I'm not saying the way comfier. But to have a relationship with God the Father, to walk with him in communion and in community, to know that Jesus is with you always, even to the very end of the age, to know that the Holy Spirit who comes into your life at the moment of your belief, walks with you, through you, comforts you, For seven days, the Israelites walked. What will you do in belief? Some of you need to believe for the first time today. Some of you need to keep believing. For these Israelites, this wasn't the first time they had to trust in God's word. It wasn't the first time they had to trust in God's plan. It was the hundredth. It was the ten thousandth. I don't know how old they all were. Joshua was in his mid-seventies. And God was still calling him, will you believe my word? Will you still trust me? And will you still go forth in obedience to what I've asked you to do, even when it seems foolish or absurd? Will you believe? Next Sunday, we're going to be back in Joshua 6. If you know the story well, you know there's some really complex parts to this story. We'll delve into the salvation of Rahab, but more than that, we'll delve into the destruction of the Canaanites. We're going to have to deal with whether or not God's fair in judgment. That's a big part of Joshua 6. Let me pray for us and we'll be done this morning. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's trustworthy. Father, that just like for the Israelites... You foretold what would happen if they obeyed. You told them to walk around the cities and the walls would come down. And that's what happened, Father. It's an example to us. It's an illustration for us. And in your word, you tell us, if we believe in you, you will save us. You'll keep your word. That we may taste physical death, but we won't taste spiritual death. That if we believe in you, you'll be with us always. You'll comfort us. 
Father, you had a radical plan because you loved us so much. And it seems like foolishness. But would you give us the strength to believe, to trust you, and to walk in obedience? Father, I pray that you would do a great work in each of us this morning, calling us to believe you, calling us to trust you, and to obey all that you've put before us. Father, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for your son, for his death, and for his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.